0: for those who uh, there are pe- people here with little dust in their eyes so out, out of compassion give the teachings turn the wheel of the law for them so this is a kind of traditional invocation to give, give a talk um, it's a recognition that uh, Dhamma talk only occurs in a, right, in a right situation when the time is right and uh, there's a, a willingness and interest, uh, receptivity uh, and a sense of concern and compassion from the person who's teaching. You know. So it's like a feeling of, are we all here? Um, is there goodwill? Um, you know, is the mind ready? And so on. And so it's certainly my own wish to provide something that may be of use to you tonight. You can carry away. The Buddha's teaching is um, inexhaustible, but we are exhaustible, so hmm. I have <laughs> not that long to go <laughs> about 45 minutes or so so I'm trying to give you a little bit of something that has been I've been noticing keeps cropping up in, in Dharma practice both in myself and in people I teach uh, a little bit that keeps cropping up I think that you might uh, benefit from focusing on, giving some attention to. And um, just to let you hang in suspense on what this bit may be, (laughs) I'd also like to uh, acknowledge and recognise that uh, you know, this, the Buddha teaches an eight, eightfold path, and the factors that revolve around that, that path that keep it going, the eightfold path, the three factors that are said to, to um, determine all of it are right view, right effort, right mindfulness. Mm. And the eightfold path, as you're well aware, right view, right intent, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So, and each of those factors is understood to give rise to particular path factors, what are called path factors. So for example, right view gives rise to the path factor of wisdom. Um, it's kind of like a, a wise or open, reflective understanding and the primary quality of right view is it understands the sense of whatever of the efficacy of doing good. You know, that, that is, there actually is a benefit from doing good. It's not just something we should do. It's something that, that makes us do good and makes us feel better when we do it. So in a way, this is the prime seed of the Eightfold Path. And it's a very important factor to, first of all, recognize or get uh, an idea of and then try to check out. So the the abiding principle is that whatever we do, that's skillful or useful, should give rise to something that's enjoyable, pleasant, uplifting, happy, bright, and makes us feel better. And this so this is the abiding principle with, within all of the aspects of the Eightfold Path. It means we may very well encounter difficulties. Struggles, conflicts. I'm sure we do, and pain. But yet, the very the quality that touches that, if you like, the quality that we generate or we place in in our in our awareness, in our intentional centre, is that which is uh, feels bright. In other words, we we love what we're doing, and when we love what we're doing, we're prepared to put up with a and deal with a certain amount of difficulty, pain, conflict, just as you would if you were. Looking after someone who was ill, and you mean you had to clean up their mess, or comfort them, or put yourself out, but because you want to sincerely wish for their welfare, you felt good about doing all that, and there was a sense of really wanting to be with that. It's much more than a duty. Um, there is, that, uh, there is <coughs> a palpable quality of feeling good that. A that right view is uh, is expected to remind one of and is gradually and increasingly generated through the other factors of the path. Um, the feel-good factor, we could say, is generated first of all by uh, a quality of uh, self-respect or I- inner stability, freedom from regret, remorse, anxiety, uh, and so on. Uh, and then... Because we act in certain ways, based upon that, it means that what's around us, you know, the people we contact, become people who we feel there's a sense of, you know, because if I do good and I'm interested in doing that, the people I'm I'm going to make deliberate contact with are going to be people who appreciate that. So one makes good friends. One has good friends, one has trustworthy friends. Uh, One looks towards one's livelihood as something... That it is not caught up with uh, covetousness, gain, swindling, uh, cheating, manipulating. You know, and recognising the pain of any of this, we we relinquish that. So we both establish a sense of inner stability and and if you like dignity, and also we begin to make our life around us that which is giving us less form of abrasive or toxic contact. And these are both very important. Um, because it's with that one can start to relax uh, and meditation which begins to come around through these factors is an increasing ability to focus in the here and now which is what mindfulness is about bringing one's sense of attention into the here and now and and through Samadhi taking this good feeling and generating it. Uh, and developing it in the bodily sense, so that samadhi is something that's accompanied by happiness, pleasure, joy. So, and the results of that is that the mind and one's whole sense of awareness feels expanded, uncontracted, uncramped, uh, and, and one feels pleasant and happy. So, you know, this is the what we might call the, the sense of the underlying thread of the eightfold path is how Wholesomeness leads to pleasant feeling, if you like. So we might say, that that's, that's it. That's the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the bit of it. Or any, any action that moves against what's unwholesome or uh, doesn't feel good, and we acknowledge that, and we incline away from it. So it's a much more um, a sensing out Uh, internally, subjectively I feel what feels good for me I acknowledge what feels good for me Uh, I acknowledge the results of my actions uh, speech, uh, people I'm with and through acknowledging that I can focus on that and uh, get a sense of uplift that then provides the kind of uh, clarity and boost and right energy which will then can be put into meditation if one's energy is divided in between trying to forget things uh, push things aside um, try to prove oneself as being okay then one's energy gets very much fractured in the meditative experience we never really get into a sense of, of collectedness so right, right intent right view right intent is that Intention to uh, put aside what's cruel or harmful, to put aside what's uh, callous, to put aside what's grasping and manipulative, and instead to dwell in qualities such as uh, well being for oneself and for others, uh, concern and compassion for oneself and others, and a sense of letting go or relinquishment, mm. ability to relax. Let go of things, um, not carry things, not worry, not carry regrets, not carry grudges but uh, and not c- not carry hankering and covetousness, so this sense of putting aside what the Buddha called covetousness and dejection you know, so those things can be dropped mm. now this is this is right intent <coughs> Then right effort is that which recognizes what's good, and the good, the good feeling, and ca- and treasures that, guards it, protects it, finds occasions to develop it, sh- shields and repels that which causes us um, inner pain. So this, uh, so we're able to monitor our heart movements, if you like, our movements of intent, and. Find out, you know, so focus in on what's good. uh, And this becomes the basis for meditation. And as we all have heard many times, I'm sure, there's quite an emphasis (coughs) on developing the sort of steadiness and effort and diligence in in practice and in daily life in order to make this uh, firm and make this come around. and uh, acknowledging all this and recognizing that for many people this doesn't actually work Mm. (coughs) it's a very fine and logical exposition for many people it doesn't work that (coughs) there is um, instead of the sense of uplift there's a sense of never having quite got it together um Of not being a very good meditator, you can't concentrate, not being very mindful at all. And uh, carrying uh, a a critical mind, a critical mindset that um, focuses on what's harmful uh, and what one may consider to have done wrong and focuses on it and heightens it and remembers it and lingers upon it. If there's a possibility that one might have done something wrong it makes that a certainty. Um, if there's any doubt about whether it was right or wrong um, the, this mindset will say well it was probably wrong. <laughs> this mindset will also uh, acknowledge and uh, dwell upon the defiled qualities the defiled nature and the aspect of, of the Buddhist teaching being suffering rather than the cessation of such um, there will also be uh, an intense um, push accompanied by sags whenever we run out of juice and this intense push will be to arrive at a state where w- one will f- feel satisfied or accomplished and this may occur in small doses perhaps on intensive meditation retreats we get l- might get little breaks of that But it's a slippery peak to to get to that we slip away from uh, probably within hours of leaving the meditation retreat, and we find ourselves slipping back into the morass of uh, feeling one hasn't quite got it together, and one can't do it in daily life anyway. Um, uh, And along with that sense of not being able to do it in daily life, we may create particular. things like, well, I'm only a lay person or um you know quite a lot of bad karma here. <coughs> and this stuff acts as a residue a particular residue of identity, uh, that 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 encases us. So somehow the, the feel good factor is not really getting in there. Uh. And the feel-bad factor is. (laughs) We might uh, recognize in the Buddha's teaching that uh, he would say things like just to recollect the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha will give rise to gladness. Uh, One should recollect this frequently. It gives rise to gladness. It it pushes away worry and doubt. Um, And to recollect one's own virtues Gives rise to gladness and faith, and these are essential factors for the path, a sense of gladness, a sense of faith, a sense of uplift. Um, and we might find that, that actually, when we recollect the Buddha Dharma Sangha, we think Buddha, Buddha, um, Buddha <laughs> <laughs> okay um, Dharma, Buddha, perhaps somebody a lot better than I am, Dharma. Something I can't do. <laughs> <laughs> Sanger a bunch of people that I'm not part of. Uh, so, so it doesn't give rise to gladness and joy. It gives rise to a, a sense of, of 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 it's other than I am. It's out there. It's other than I am. Uh, and I suppose we've all recollections like that, which are which are in the Buddhist scriptures, saying that you know these are things that should bring comfort for you, you know somebody on your side, there's good things going for you, you know, you're in touch with this, this is really good um, feel like you're not in touch with this, yeah. this is something other than yourself, other than where you are like um, many others uh, I found in early days practicing um, metabhavana bhavana extraordinarily difficult because of the apparent simplicity of saying may I be well and the actual lack of any result of saying those words. May I be well, may I be well, may I be well, yeah, okay. (laughs) May you be well, yeah, right. You know, it's like, so and so. (laughs) What does that do? (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, what's happening here, you know? the inability we might find at the end of the day to recollect today it was that I didn't kill anything oh today I didn't steal anything oh today I didn't abuse any sexually abuse anybody oh. today well I, did I could have said a lot worse <laughs> 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 you know I I held back the really <laughs> stinging stuff you know that was about to jump out. Uh, that was pretty good you know i c- I could have really lashed out there, but i didn't no that was pretty good and today, you know I didn't drink or intoxicate myself. I know I would imagine in this particular group of people those would be not be uncommon possibilities for all of us yeah. and is this something that you actually do and if you do does it does it give rise to anything or isn't it more likely that when one sits what comes up is oh I wonder what happened to that oh I never even got that together I stop thinking about this stop it why can't I meditate okay let's straighten up now hmm. I feel tired oh stop it <laughs> <laughs> right more effort is needed you know uh, the, 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 the th- or recollecting, you know, I didn't really say goodbye to so and so very well. Uh, Little things one regrets. It could have been better. Yeah. I wish I'd done that better. I could have done that better. Yeah. Not to say that in the world, in the you know ideal world, mm, there are things we could have done better. And there's always that possibility. Perhaps it could have been better. But the recognition of it could have been a lot worse, and I did pretty good today. A rare thing, and something that even one says it, there's a kind of patronising tone to it. Yeah. Right. You didn't do that bad, I suppose, you know, considering what a, what a lunkhead you really are. <laughs> 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 you know, that one hangs on to these things as, a, as, a, as some sort of defence from the worst forms of, of self-criticism. So what I'm talking about, and, and perhaps the, the topic of tonight's talk, is is the inner tyrant, um, the, the tyrant of self-criticism. The tyrant that prevents us from tasting goodness, tasting our own goodness, relishing it, and thereby drink it being nourished by that, and being able to enhance that, and dwell in it, and feel comfortable in it, and use it as a basis for... Settling ourselves into meditation. Mm. So. Unseating the tyrant. Unseating the tyrant. Of which. All forms of guerrilla warfare. May be employed. <laughs> now as we all acknowledge there is a good amount of dukkha around uh, we, we dwell in a, in a realm that is a place of pain difficulties um, separations um, painful experiences um, brutalities um, inability to really hold on to that uh, to something that's satisfying Know, things do satisfy us, but temporarily, and then we can't hold on to that inability to really fend off uh, and make sure that nothing painful or hurtful or or sorrowful will come to us, so we're in this plane, this plane of dukkha, uh, and this is these are aspects of the noble truth of suffering, but these aspects actually are the bits that Buddhism doesn't do that much to address the main thing that it addresses is the sense of, of identity based upon the five kanda and saying you know, if we could actually understand the suffering of the identity experience, the identification experience and the identity as a kind of case that we dwell in or that, that encases us um, and we can liberate ourselves from that then these other forms of pain and sorrow would be things that we could manage, perhaps even grow through, grow in terms of compassion, in terms of patience, in terms of relinquishment. We could grow through those rather than really feel we have to try to resist what can't be resisted or hang on to what can't be hung on to. So the primary um, aim of, of Buddhist practice to which other forms of um, effort lead up to is to um, get out or let go of this identification experience. Mm. An inner tyrant is one particular guard that tries to prevent that. It's the guard that's whose main speech is directed towards what you are as not being. Good enough, and uh, and as it directs itself to you, saying you're not good enough, it thereby undercuts the confidence you might have had to to rebel against it, mm, or to uh, find a source of um, well-being or comfort or uh, ease. So even these things in meditation or that we can experience can be seen as perhaps something you might get stuck in. You don't want to have any ease because you might get attached to it. Um, So the inner tyrant even takes over the little crumbs of satisfaction we can get and says, don't hang on to that, don't get attached to it. What you need is to let go of that. (coughs) This Creature, this this experience has uh, dogged me ever since I've been a monk, and uh, everybody I know who is a monk or nun is dogged by it. And only I recognise, as I talk to many lay practitioners, it's a big thing for them too. And some examples of just of this I in my early years. As I began to meditate, I didn't know much about Buddhism, and there wasn't really a lot of encouragement to understand the Eightfold Path. It was just sit there and meditate, you know, get in the Kuti and meditate. You know, sounds good. And I think many of you have probably entered into the Dharma through that particular doorway, and, and say there are certain advantages towards that, and you just get, if you like, to the point, you don't carry a lot of stuff, you don't have to study a lot, you get down to trying to be. With your own material and develop your own uh, uh, understanding from that. This advantage is that one doesn't necessarily have the resources or the strengths or, or the workout that's re- that um, the Eightfold Path gives us to make us more, ex- more agile, more expansive, more endowed with the ability to access our well being. Um, to reflect upon good things we've done, to bring up that sense of contentment that then acts as a as a basis for meditation. So when I first practiced, there was just that. We just did meditation on w- on our own in, in a little hut. And there was one meal a day which was brought around. And I'd just come out of India. Uh, this time I'd spent about six months in India, and I had uh, very amoebic dysentery when I was in India. So I was down to about maybe somewhere between 135 and 140 pounds. So it was like a rake. Um, uh, so, you know, I didn't have much flesh on my bones. So uh, coming into this monastery then getting one meal a day, there was a certain amount of interest in this one meal a day that turned <laughs> up. I mean, it was not haute cuisine. You know, it's certainly not uh, five-star stuff. But in that stage of the game, you know, you don't. It's only something you just put inside you. You're not really that fussy. Now, I notice there was this emphasis. We're doing Burmi Satipatthana method, which is, as you probably know, is doing everything very slowly and noting it, and you know, moving, touching, lifting, intending, kind of thing. Um, And then when this food would come in, all that would go. (laughs) You know, sort of thing. Intending, right? Intending, right? (laughs) Spoon food. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'd noticed that um, that there would be something in me eating this food really fast. And, I st- and after all, I started to wonder why I was eating this food so fast. I mean, really throw it down quick. It wasn't, you know, it's not actually going to run away. So <laughs> one doesn't... <laughs> even you know, so you don't actually necessarily need to eat it that fast. Uh, one doesn't eat, eat it that slow, but to really throw it down, I recognized I was eating it fast so that my mind wouldn't be able to note it. Because with my n- mind noted it, noticed it, I noticed I was feeling some excitement, some happiness about eating food, And that if my mind noticed that, then that was always accompanied by a sense of, of criticism that you shouldn't be enjoying this. There shouldn't be any sense of well-being arriving here. (coughs) So if i got to eat it quickly before I noticed it, there was a chance I'd get one in before the tyrant came in. (laughs) But uh (laughs) the tyrant always came in, even when one's washing up, because then he'd say, well, you lost mindfulness as well. You you weren't very mindful either. Uh, So then you've got a big problem with food. You've got a big food defilement. So then I started, well, let's try and eat less and less and less. And so I was getting down to eating like about, you know, enough food that you could hold in two hands. And that was one one meal, you know. That was it for a person of my size in a day. And if I if I could just eat that much, maybe the tyrant would leave me alone. Uh, so I, I had a, a thing where I was trying to squash the food down as much as possible. I had a little <laughs> pot to put it in. I th- if I really squash this food right down so it get as much into this little <laughs> little tin that they used to eat out of it, little tins to eat out of, you know, then I could say I only ate this much, uh, even though it was very compacted. So I'd tend to throw all the watery stuff away and just eat as much of this totally compacted food as possible with a hope that then the tyrant would would not catch me. But he always did in the end. Uh, Meditating, maybe, you know, doing formal practice, somewhere between fourteen, fifteen hours a day, and not feeling one was doing enough. Uh, so, you know, you might stop to eat the meal, then that would be not, you know, not very good. But then stop to have a drink. Only one was allowed, uh, in the, in my mind, you know anything more than four hours sleep, you know, not enough effort here. And it became obvious that no matter what one did, there was always more that it could be. Uh, and the fact that I'd come from a life of some hedonism and substance abuse and, and freewheeling into a life and was actually keeping precepts and living on, on one meal a day was not taken as... I never actually touched into that as being a sign of having done something good <laughs> or made any effort at all. Uh, and this may be an extreme example, but I, I've noticed this in most everybody, that that uh, certainly in there's something I can see good in most everybody else that they don't really notice. Or, or if I say it, they say, oh, yeah, but so what? You know, I say, well, you know, you're really good at, you really speak... Straight and honestly, yeah, yeah. But you know, I haven't really got much to say. But but you're really quite a kind person. Well, yeah, you know. <laughs> it just sort of slips off, the, you know, like like water off a duck's back. So this is an aspect of, of the, the tyrant. It's one that never lets you up and never gives you any any credit for having done good, and always creates incredible agendas that you have to try to achieve in order to get some sense of of approval, -approval. self-approval. Why does this happen? Mm. (coughs) Maybe one of the hosts of Mara, seems to be one of the hosts of Mara. But you can recognize that most of us exist in a situation where we both um, experience ourselves Subjectively, somewhat incoherently, uh, just feeling what we're feeling, sensing what we're having kind of impulses coming up, um, interests coming and going, senses of pleasure and pain. This is subjective quality of this is something's happening to me, yeah. something's happening here, there's that. And we also have the experience of trying to present or get a cohesive whole that looks okay to the world outside. You know. So many of the things I feel I don't mention. Many of the impulses that arise in my mind I don't speak about. Many of the thoughts that come in I keep quiet about. Um, so there's a considerable screening out of, of what's happening subjectively into what will manifest externally. And you know there's this is a socialization process, isn't it? And uh, from externally, we get a tremendous amount of input and messages as to what we should be. Some of these are to do with our intelligence, our physical strength, our physical appearance, our mannerisms, uh, and many of these are very explicit, and many of these are su- slightly more um, surreptitious. Some of these are you know, like, um, role modelling, uh, what, th- what everybody else is wearing, what looks cool this year. What are the current jargon words to use? What kind of um, body language one uses? Um, which are perhaps not explained so much, but you see it and you feel you want to be part of what everybody else is doing because then, or what's been happening on television, because then you feel OK. So some of this is quite explicit and job-oriented or partner-oriented or w- you know career-oriented, and some of it is just... Socially social approval or social okayness. but all in all, there's a, there's a huge amount of energy and attention going into being an object that is seen as okay on all levels by everybody else you know, or by one's particular group. And in meditation, who's the good meditators? (Laughter) He's nodding again. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> he wriggles, you know. <laughs> you know. these kinds of things that can go on. He does can't sit very long, not really no no guts, this guy. <laughs> can't endure very much, you know, not committed. There's this thing so that one can feel sometimes in, in group processes, group meditative processes a sense of held in by 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 the by the group, by an unconscious sense of of trying to feel one is doing as good as other people or hoping that one's gross defilements don't get noticed. Mm-hmm. So this object object forming tendency. Mm. And this can feel this can be exaggerated by social pressures to such a large extent that we either outlaw our subjectivity or hardly even know he got one. Hardly even recognise it. Either something subjective happens to us, a particular feeling. Oh, is it, is it? Stop that. Uh, not too certain about this. After all, there's no self. So that must anything subjective must be something wrong with that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so it either gets outlawed or trivialised. Silly old me with my funny moods. Wandering mind. So that's exactly what it becomes. You know. Or we, d- we don't know what we are. You just feel okay, I guess. Both? <laughs> feel all right? Yep. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so that the, the, the uh, ability to get an some thing going in terms of rece- res- you know, receptivity or, or awareness of one's own subjective, immediate, here-and-now experience, good or bad, Uh, gets lost underneath the emphasis that we've created for ourselves and probably helped to create in, in social patterns, that we are seen to be okay. And that gets internalized to, even if I'm on my own, I want myself to be able to think I'm okay. I want to be able to look at myself and conceive of myself as being an okay kind of person. Uh, more than okay, actually, but but um, really no weak spots there. This sounds pretty much like it could, could be a good facility for us. You know, after all, we want to do what's right and be aware of our faults and blemishes and so on, and, and strive to to um, you know realize fullness, truth, and so on. But just recognizing the incredible biases that go on in the object-forming tendency of who is thi- who, am I who is the one who thinks about me. Who is th- who is the one who thinks about you? Mm. In, in your in your mental process, one who thinks about you, are they on your side? Does the does that which thinks about you in your mind, is it on your side? Is it saying? Well, you know, you had a very hard day today, Phil, and I wonder you're feeling so tired. When um, you need to stand up for a while, right? perhaps you need to find, just shift your meditation to this particular theme. Or does it say, come on, get it together, Phil, snap out of it, pull yourself together, sit up straight and get on with it? <laughs> you know. Or uh, and in terms also, one's the emotional experiences one can have the feelings of some sadness or uncertainty or anxiety. You know, painful things may have happened. People have died. People have been hurt. Uh, we may have experienced loss and grief. And then, what is it that regards our emotional state? And is that aware, attentive, or is it judgmental? Or is it just not interested? regard that as something that's not about practice <coughs> are we, can be, we be fully aware of our own bodies is that which regards us aware of our own bodily state and I don't mean a particular point of contact such as the sensation of the breath but just the whole tonal quality of the body it seems to me that one of the things that occurs in this process of um, of ob- being an object uh, and c- uh, is that a certain dissociation occurs, whereby um, a lot of our time, a lot of energy goes into um, thinking, being up in our heads and thinking, so that that facility gets gets um, strengthened. Uh, and uh, everything that is thought has got a certain credibility to it. We're literate folks, we read, we hear, we listen to things, we watch television, we communicate verbally. Um, Unlike the time of the Buddha, which was pretty illiterate, um, people didn't use uh, written word very much at all. Now we're extremely literate, the words scream off the walls at us everywhere. So we are up in that world of thought, yeah. And um, just coming here today, for example, and casually noticing people walking down the street, just seeing well, who fi- does it look like. This person is actually in their body. You know, actually feeling their body as it walks, or sensing their body when it's walking along. And uh, it most people look like there's a head, a thought machine riding on top of a body. <laughs> Body works too slow. You know, Thought machine is already where it's going, and this body's kind of running along after it, underneath it. <laughs> so body works, if we get in a car because the body works too slow. Uh, we phone someone up because it too, takes too long to get there. Uh, we use cars, email, uh, all this, because we the body's just too, too dang slow for what our heads want to do. So this body remains as a sort of like a... Uh, a a tank, a fuel tank. You just throw food in it, and then the head rides on it. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you meditate, the head looks down. And says, oh, there's a body down there. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> okay. Well, you just sit there, body, and don't give me any pain. <laughs> and just be quiet, because right now I want to do this meditating stuff. <laughs> <laughs> then the body does give you some pain. Oh, stop it, body. Stop it, feelings. Stop it, emotions. Get out. You know, I'm trying to meditate here. <laughs> this sense of the. Where which. Is so instead of a some sense of a kind of ability to acknowledge there's a feeling here, there's a sensation here, there's, there's a there's feeling, the feeling as a feeling in itself, we recognize the feeling and think about it and b- and um, decide whether it's worthwhile or not when it's good or bad and, and and then respond in that way we don't actually allow a feeling to come be felt do what it needs to do pass yeah. sitting here tonight police car you know, goes by hear the sound that incredible wailing siren sound recognizing you know, when that comes, that sound has to do what it has to do. It can't be the sound of a nightingale. It can't be sound. It has to do what it has to do. Thinking mind says, oh, yeah. police car will probably be gone in a few seconds. Just wait. And that's quite skillful, because at other times it's actually rushed out the window and, 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 and jumped on that police car. <laughs> but... Uh, even, even in its most kind of receptive moments, the thinking mind still conceives of what that is. Yeah, decides. Well, it's a police car, so it could be here. It's okay. You know, if somebody stumbled in here, say, you know, crashed in here playing a trumpet, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> or just even wandered in slightly loudly in the middle of the sitting. You know, I wouldn't like to be where they are, you know, in terms of what the, what the thinking minds would do <laughs> to that person. <laughs> so, you know, because immediately the sound is interpreted as whether it should be here or not, um, and, and then, um, you know, even if it should be here, well, how long it's going to be here before it will go away and leave me in peace. So the sound hasn't actually been heard as a sound. Uh, any feeling that comes up with that pleasure, displeasure has not been felt what's immediately been the immediate response is to think it explain it, rationalise it decide what it is, come to a conclusion end so the whole thing has just only been received through one channel and similarly with external phenomena also internal phenomena, the same kind of thing can occur but much of meditation I would suggest is learning to get to a sense of the whole system is able to be a receptor. And the whole system has three primary structures to it. One is called the bodily Kaya Sankara, one is called the effective, the way we're affected, jitta sankara, and the third is called the way we conceive, the vajji sankara. And these these three. So thinking seems forms a part of that, but it's it's like a um, you know um, one part, a secretarial part. It it writes the memo. Uh, It doesn't run the meeting. It writes the memo. And learning when we come into meditation, or just the as we practice in our daily lives, what does this feel like? Say from. The whole bodily sense, bodily point of view. And when I say this, I don't mean a particular sensation. I mean when you're standing up and you know when you're balanced and when you're tilting over, that's a bodily sense. When you feel some tension and when you feel relaxed, that's a bodily sense. And it's not just particular points, it's a whole sense. When you feel welcome and when you feel rejected, there's a bodily sense there you. When you feel frightened, there's a bodily sense. When you feel angry, there's a bodily sense. Mm -hmm. And we know these. It doesn't take, if you just bring up words like that, you can almost feel how your body, certain energies shift in your body. That's the bodily sense. Mm -hmm. And so it has intelligence. It's not just locked into one anatomical pattern. it, It fluctuates and changes. It responds and is affected. And when it's a way which we can use to determine beyond thought, conception, and judgment, does this feel right? Does this feel okay? Do I feel settled here? Do I feel welcome here? Do I feel rested here? Or do I feel something in me has to defend myself here? Something in me has to tense up here? Something in me has to prove something here? And if this is occurring in the bodily sense, you can be sure that the, all the, your meditation based on that will never penetrate through to something that is peaceful and enjoyable. It will always carry this mark of some tension and some contraction. And the contracted bodily sense is echoed by a contracted emotional uh, breadth one, one's emotional breath, or one's affected breath, has no space in it. One is edgy, one is reactive, one is dismissive I- emotionally. There's not the emotional spaciousness which we call dispassion. There's not the emotional spaciousness which we call loving-kindness. Uh, the, mar- the heart remains unrested, not abundant, uh, cramped, uh, and not uh, in, imbued with, Benevolence and uh, compassion. The fundamental source and footprint of all the hindrances is, is the contracted experience. So, whatever hindrance we experience, whether it's anger which tightens us up, or dullness which makes us feel, you know, uh, contracted, compa- you know, compacted, or um, greed which makes us feel we've got to you know tighten up around some object. All of it all of those have the similar mark or characteristic of something in your bodily energy pattern tightens up. And whenever if we can recognise it right at that level and know how we can release that, it's like you undercut the base of all the hindrances. It's also good to recognize that many of the hindrances may occur not because one is fundamentally so obsessive or corrupt but fundamentally one is so tense you know one is bodily tense if you if you live in an urban environment you can be c- certain that you have to deal with a certain amount of bodily tension that comes from just the sharp impact the unknown people the the uncertainties the cars charging at you like Carnivorous crocodiles every time you try and cross <laughs> the street, <laughs> the, the light's flashing at you. you, you you're going to be contracted. That's not your fault. Um, that's the body saying, "I'm protecting you." Uh, but if that contraction is not released or relaxed, then you, 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 what occurs <coughs> is you it gets emotionally resonated as a sense of anxiety. Uh, frustration, niggardliness, uh, irritability, greed, and so forth. And if we can recognize the bodily pattern in uh, a hindrance, or when that bodily sense on how to release that, we have a way of undercutting the power of the hindrances. And this, I think, is a very important thing to be able to acknowledge, the bodily sense of things. Because it is something that is natural and beyond debate. And you can't fake it. Now a lot of people can, we can all learn particular stances, bodily stances. You know, looking fairly cool, looking fairly relaxed. You know, so we can all mime it, you know. Mime or mimic the relaxed at ease person. You know, because that's what we're supposed to be. (laughs) So we learn how to do it. Uh, but actually feeling it in yourself. Really feeling free, feeling open, feeling okay is a very different thing. In terms of the <coughs> heart base, whatever emotional or emotive or affective qualities we have give rise to volition. So when I say... Emotion. i don 't mean necessarily particularly emotional patterns, but the very sense of this touches me you know and then what happens there's some sort of resonance there you know. so we, uh, a full a full emotional pattern may arise out of that or just the sort of sensitivity that shimmers that is the base of volition, which is our will or our interest or our action to do something you know. so because we're touched, we do so something in this jumps up, and if we're touched. Uh, strongly enough then a uh, you know, particular volitional quality arises that may come from either internal contact, thinking of something when we think of something We, feel, oh right, do that a uh, particular sense of that's wrong do this, you know, comes up or it may be an external contact we see something and oh I'll do this, or oh I won't do that you know. so that, that little signalling is going on volition is the source of karma. And karma is the thing that that we need to be liberated from. The process of awakening is one whereby one attunes to how karma arises from this volitional quality. Present karma arises from this trembling, this urge, this jumping in the heart of what to do, to do something. That's where it arises, that instinct. And then if we catch hold of that, then we perform acts of karma. And liberation is when having carefully understood this and attuned to what is good karma and reap the results of that, actually dwell in the sense of happiness or freedom or release or ease or clarity or confidence or mindfulness (laughs) or whatever you like to call it, all these factors the volitional quality is satisfied. I don't need to do. I have. I am. You know, there's enough here. There's a sense of satisfaction. So that volitional quality is ceasing. Then there's a sense of, of peace. This is one way of describing the awakening process. Now, because so much volition gets triggered by external stimulation and also by the 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 cognitive mind, which is, which is largely dominated by this inner tyrant. So you can find yourself when actually there really maybe isn't that need to do anything, still with this restless feeling of something to do, need to do something, need to fix something, um, get on with something, don't waste time, do something important right now, and then was this good enough Uh, so the volitional quality gets corrupted by this sense of, of inadequacy or need to be need to be a good object so it's something to tinker with volition we may very well feel that the right place of volition is to spur us ever onwards to the goal but when the spurring and the rider is not on your side, um, the chance of it going to the right goal are not that great. One of the things that I've been realising can be useful is aimlessness, in um, periods of aimlessness, uh, which is a, a relaxation of volition. We might try two minutes of it as an experiment you know. <laughs> I feel the sense of, well, what are supposed to do now? I don't feel very good. This is wasting my time, which <coughs> should be important. You know, it <laughs> doesn't take long for the, the tyrant to get going. And <laughs> you see, volition, you know, when it sees his primary tool is actually being dropped. The tyrant gets quite upset with this so developing you know from two minutes of aimlessness to maybe you know ten minutes of aimlessness um, I've been teaching aimless wandering recently as they like half an hour of wandering aimlessly <laughs> <laughs> just uh, and, and maybe noticing actually what what you're feeling when there isn't any particular agenda just just turning into the subjectivity when there isn't anything to prove to yourself or to other people um, nothing we have to accumulate or acquire just seeing how we can play with or massage volition so we're no longer dominated by it and by the the way that it gets grabbed um, and I find this very useful for re- it really stirs in inner tyrant so I like to do it to the th- tyrant just give him a hard time every now and then he's <laughs> <laughs> given me such a hard time <laughs> so so it's a it's a very it's not a kind of i've now you know i've elevated now to dharma practice so <laughs> so it's got a little bit of you know creed a, a cred uh, street cred to it I say well you okay, know, half an hour of aimlessness you know just allowing whatever thought is there, whatever feeling is there, whatever, to be felt, to be sensed. If you feel like standing up, stand up. If you feel like walking, walking. If you feel like stopping, stop. Um, and it's sort of kind of loosening up this, this mechanism. So, it, um, you know, then, in some ways, it, to my, my experience, it allows things to just settle and ease, and a sense of relaxation comes in. And then I find... Oh, well, this is really nice, I think I'd like to just sit here and be with my body and breathe in and out. So, it, you know, it doesn't go into the tyrant of saying, well, you're going to do this, you'll be doing this for the rest of your life, wasting your time, you know, this is disgusting, it always generalises you know, into this, you think this is, you can do this for the rest of your life, no, no, just half an hour, and then we'll see what happens. Um, and finally, it's quite a useful massage of volition to, to take one into the meditative process quite naturally uh, naturally meditation is something lovely to do you know, it should be that which you know we do from a place of oh how you know it's really nice to be here and perhaps to touch into painful areas from a feeling of, of uh, endowment enrichment mm. so it isn't just a like I've got to do my work today uh, a chore or a you've got to get, you know, re- report in at the end of the day how well you did. I've been practicing this for quite a while. I started developing it when I got uh, um, aimlessness of, uh, of keeping my room, my room tidy. I'd get very obsessive about tidying my room. Uh, I had a period of time when I was living in a room and I was doing a sitters practice where you don't lie down at all. So I was sitting all the time. Sitting all th- and sitting, I decided not to read anything either, so I didn't, and I didn't not to talk. So I wasn't reading anything, talking, or lying down. And the tyrant was quite pleased with me for that. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't like. I'd get sleepy, which he didn't think too very well about. Um, so I'd noticed that one thing I would do is I would endlessly fuss around my room, sweeping it and tidying it, and um, you know, little bits of dust I'd flick off. Then I'd go and water the plants and sit down again. and it's The curtain looks like it needs folding. Sit down again. Looks like I had a file. Great needs sweeping. Sit down again. Fiddle with a book. So I determined to spend a week of not tidying it at all. Not doing anything to it. Just sitting there and letting the dust accumulate. (laughs) Letting things fall and the (laughs) dust accumulate. And feeling this kind of volitional thing jump up in the air... uh, and just ha- just acknowledge it. Just contemplate the volitional quality and let it go, let it go, let it go, until the mind begins to sink into into a quiet place, and then coming from that quiet place to do what seems to be that what that quiet place says or feels is the appropriate thing to do. So in that, t- so that the volitional quality is no longer dominated from the programmed head centre but instead feels the whole sense of what's right here and what's right there. And in this, the, the path comes together both internally and externally. And because of that, the sense of oneself as some alienated object within the world begins to dissolve. So this little piece I offer you tonight and I hope it's for your welfare.